Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John. And this morning we come to the very last section of chapter 1. And I'll begin reading in verse 35. And I'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 51. This is God's Word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus said, saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why are you here this morning? If I were to ask you that question on the way in, you would probably give me kind of the cliche Christian answer, well, I'm here to worship I'm here to hear the word of God. I'm here to fellowship with God's people. And I'm sure that to a large degree that's true for most and hopefully all of you. But if you were really, really honest in answering that question, I might hear a wider variety of responses, such as, I'm here because mom and dad made me come, or I'm here because my husband or my wife made me come, Or I'm here because my roommate made me come. Or I'm here because I want to hang out with my friends. Or I'm here because it's my tradition, it's my habit on Sunday morning to do this. You might even say it's a good networking opportunity for my business. Or you probably, and I think everyone could say to some degree, I might not be here except that I would feel too guilty if I skipped. And that's just being honest, that when we come to worship, our motivations are mixed. Our hearts are not entirely pure. 
I became a Christian late in my teenage years, and up until that time, I went to church almost every Sunday. But I only went because my parents made me, and also because I would have felt guilty if I had skipped. But as I reflect back on my teenage years leading up to my conversions, I reflect on the fact that I anxiously and even eagerly went to church camp several of those summers leading up to my conversion. And I thought, well, why was I so anxious to go to church camp, but I never wanted to go to church on Sunday morning? And I realized, of course, it was because church camp was fun. We did a lot of fun things. and There were a lot of cute girls there. The bad news is that if we are truly seeking God, our motivation for coming to God is never pure and unmixed. Never. Not until the day we die is it ever pure and unmixed. But the good news is the grace of God is sufficient and that God will receive us anyway with our mixed motivations and impure hearts if we come through Christ. As we come to this end of the first chapter of John's Gospel, as you read through these accounts, you see that it's all about people coming to Christ. People with mixed motivations, with imperfect understandings, but with sincere hearts. Truly seeking something that Christ had to offer. In one sense, as we look at these first conversions to Christ, we see in this very moment the birth of the church. Now, I know theologically it would be appropriate to say that the church was born even outside of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were not put to death right away but were approached by God in grace and promised a deliverer. In a sense, the church started there. In another sense, the church started when God chose Abraham and his family to be the visible kingdom of God on earth. In another sense, the church was started when Moses gave God's people the law and organized them and established them as the kingdom of God on earth. And of course, probably the time when we really think of the church being born is on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection of Christ, when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples and they were established and authorized and sent out as the visible representations of the kingdom of God on earth. But in a smaller sense, This is where you first see the disciples of Christ coming to Christ himself. And in these first disciples, you see the the beginnings of the movement that would turn the world upside down. This is really a key tipping point, a transition point in the kingdom of God. As we said last week, John the Baptist Even though his account is in the New Testament, he really was the last Old Testament prophet. And we left off last week with him saying to his disciples, which were many, the crowds had gathered around him in the wilderness and he had baptized them. But as his ministry meets, it comes to its high point. We come to this point of transition where he sees Jesus Christ among the crowds and he points to him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From this point on, John the Baptist begins to step back because now his ministry is superseded by a far greater ministry, that of the Messiah. 
And in these verses, at the end of chapter 1, we see the first disciples being gathered to Christ and the church being formed. And what's fascinating to me, and I just want to point this out before we go any further, notice how Christ forms the seed of his church. Notice how the kingdom comes and how the kingdom spreads. We see it already even here at the beginning. Jesus didn't choose a diverse and politically correct representation of all the different segments of the Jewish population to form the nucleus of his church. That's how we might have done it. We might have wanted to find somebody, you know, to represent the lower class and somebody to represent the upper class and somebody to represent the Pharisees and somebody to represent the Sadducees and try to build a consensus and, you know, how they do it in politics. But that's not how Jesus established his kingdom. It's interesting to me that he basically picks a group of small-town friends that most of them knew each other to one degree or another. When these first disciples come to him, the thing that struck me the most as I studied this passage this week is look at what the very first words that we hear in the Gospel of John out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Very first words recorded, spoken by Jesus Christ, is when these disciples come to him and he says, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now, understand that neither God the Father nor God the Son ever ask questions of us or people in general for their own information. He doesn't need for us to answer his questions for him to know anything. He knows all things. So why does he ask so many questions? Why, when he goes into the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve has sinned, why does he say, Adam, where are you? Was he really having trouble finding him? Of course not. He asked the question as a penetrating question for self-analysis for Adam himself to question his own heart, to question where he was, what was going on. And so Jesus wants these first disciples, and I think he wants all of his disciples, to ask themselves, when you come to me, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? It's a really important question because many people claim to seek Jesus, but they're looking for the wrong things from him. They're coming to Jesus on their own terms, seeking to have their needs met the way they want them met. But we cannot come to Jesus on our own terms to get what we want. We need to come to him for what he offers, what he truly offers to sinners like you and me. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. What does Jesus offer to those who sincerely seek him? And we're going to see that he offers four things. First of all, he offers to us the opportunity to know the truth. Secondly, he offers us the opportunity to change who we are. Thirdly, he offers us the opportunity to be fully known and understood. And fourth, he offers us the opportunity to see and to be reconciled to God. That's what he offers to these first disciples. And that's what he offers to anyone who will come sincerely seeking him. First of all, to seek Christ is to seek to know the truth. Look at verse 36. John the Baptist is standing there in the wilderness, near the Jordan again, 
and says with two of his disciples. Now, I don't know if this is at a time when the other disciples had gone away to their homes to get something to eat or whatever. I don't know if it was just John and these two or just these are the two that John the Apostle wants us to focus upon. And what's interesting is the account goes on. We do quickly figure out that one of those two disciples is Andrew. And then in the broader context, it becomes pretty obvious that the other disciple is John himself. The John who wrote, the Apostle John who wrote this gospel. So John and Andrew are standing there with John the Baptist. And here they see Jesus again the second time in our account. And this second time, John repeats his declaration. It's not like he can't give any new revelation. That's the high point of his ministry. He cannot tell them anything else. It's as far as he takes it. He says, this is the Lamb of God. And so Andrew and John leave John the Baptist, and they follow after Jesus. John had said, I am unworthy to tie, untie his sandals from his feet. I'm unworthy to be even his slave. He must increase, I must decrease, he would later say. John the Baptist pointed to the truth, but Jesus Christ is the truth. And so, as John the Apostle and Andrew follow after Jesus, Jesus turns to them and asks this penetrating question, What are you seeking? And I get the sense that John and Andrew must be a little bit, must have been a little bit unnerved by the question because they don't really answer the question, do they? They don't know how to answer the question. They don't know their hearts well enough. And so they kind of redirect and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, I don't really think that they were that interested in his accommodations. The reason they asked that question, I think, is they are kind of angling for an invitation. An invitation to come to where he was staying, to have dinner, to have a private session of question and answers. I think that's what they really wanted. If this really was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if this really is the Messiah, they want to be with him. They want to hear his wisdom. They want to hear his truth. The word rabbi, and it explains it right there in the text, it means in Aramaic, the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke, it means teacher. But probably isn't an adequate word for us because we think of a teacher, we think of a classroom teacher, and most of you are in elementary school or high school or college, you know, you think of a whole bunch of teachers you have, you have teachers all over the place. In this context, a rabbi was more like a mentor, a one who would be your teacher. You wouldn't have a whole group of teachers, you'd have one teacher, your rabbi, and you would spend All your time with this rabbi, you would not only sit under all his teaching and take all of his teaching as truth, but you would seek to be like him and you would serve him like a servant if his person was really your rabbi. And so they call to him as rabbi, as a mentor, and they say, please teach us, is really what they're saying. And so Jesus responds to this implied request in verse 39, and he says, come and you will see. And I think he intentionally means that with kind of a double meaning. He doesn't mean come and you'll see this nice place where I'm staying. That's not what he means, I don't think, primarily. He means come and your eyes will be opened. Come, sit under my teaching and the lights will turn on. You will see truth. You will find ultimate truth if you submit yourself to my teaching. And that's all they needed to know at that point. It is interesting, if you follow through the Gospels, 
that Jesus is called rabbi less and less as the Gospels go along, and after his resurrection, he's never called rabbi again by the disciples. Not that he's not their rabbi anymore, but that he's become so much more than their rabbi as they come to understand the truth, as they come to see who he is, and they begin to call him Lord. Lord, which is the New Testament equivalent of Yahweh, my Lord and my God. He is the word. He is the truth. And so the lesson for us is that Jesus must become our rabbi and so much more than that, but never less than that. He must become our teacher. He must become our mentor. That's where we begin with him is going to him as the only source of truth for our lives, the one who gives us the truth by which we gauge and measure all other claims to truth. We must come to him with a humble, teachable heart, not the heart of a skeptic. And we must accept his word as truth. And if we're willing to humbly receive his word as truth, he says, come and you will see. Your spiritual eyes will be opened. And so is Jesus your rabbi? Is he your daily mentor? Is he the only one from whom you seek ultimate truth? And is his truth the truth by which you measure all other truths? Is he your master? Is he increasingly your Lord? Is his word the final word in your life? Secondly, as we look at these first disciples, we see that to seek Christ is not only to know the truth, but is to Come to him so that the truth might change us. You don't come to Jesus as an academic exercise to be intellectually enlightened. To come to Christ for truth is to come to be changed, changed to the very core of who you are. In verse 39, it says that John and Andrew spent the whole day with Jesus that first day. And then after that one day of instruction... Andrew becomes the first missionary of the new church. And typically, the first mission field was his family. Andrew leaves after one day with Christ and goes to his family and finds his brother Simon and brings him to meet Jesus. In verse 42, it says, When Jesus saw Simon coming to him, he said, You are Simon, you shall be called Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. And John makes it clear there that the Greek word for rock is Petros or Peter. So Jesus says, you are Simon, you will be Peter. Now, as we know, as we get to know Peter in the coming chapters and what you know of him from the other Gospels, at this point in his life, was Peter was not rock-like at all. He was very impulsive, tempestuous, Unstable. Matter of fact, it's interesting, and I didn't know this until I studied this week. It's interesting. Jesus only calls Simon Peter one other time in all the Gospels after this point. He calls him every time he's called Peter in the other Gospels, but by the Gospel writers. When Jesus addresses Simon Peter, he calls him Simon every time he addresses him, all during his earthly ministry, except for one time. Only once does he call Simon Peter, and that's when he tells him, you're going to deny me three times. 
After Peter says, I will never leave you. I will stand beside you until death. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So he only calls him Peter to point out how far he still has to go to becoming the kind of rock-like leader of the church that he would become by the grace of God. Only after the resurrection and only after the Holy Spirit descended upon the church in the day of Pentecost does Simon show himself by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to be Peter, the rock on which Christ would build his church. And the truth that we bring home to ourselves as we look at Peter's example is that Jesus, even from the point when we first come to him, think about this, even from the first moment that we come to him with sincere hearts, seeking him with our impure motives, even from that moment, Jesus looks at us in light of what he's going to transform us into. He sees us as we will be by his grace and by his power at work within us. Not just as we are in our sin and weakness. I'll sometimes pull out old family pictures and I'll look at pictures of my own children and they're almost all adults now and so I look at pictures of them when they're three and five and six and seven years old and it's always kind of fascinating now to look at those old pictures and I can see the consistency and similarity between what they look like now and what they looked like then when they were only five or six years old. But what's, what would be, you know, I think back on my life in those very difficult, stressful early days of parenting when I had toddlers and young children, and I think, what a comfort it would have been for me. What an encouragement it would have been to me if I could have somehow seen what they would become by God's grace later in their life. If I could see when I looked at them when they were still these formless, shapeless voids of being five or six years old as children, if I could look at them and see what God was going to make of them many years down the road, see them as disciples of Christ walking in obedience to him and making an impact on the world, I know I would have relaxed a lot as a parent if I could have seen my children in light of what God was going to do in their lives. But understand that God looks at all of us that way. He sees us, yes, he sees us as we are, but he sees us as he will make us. He sees us for what we will become by his grace if we truly belong to him. We are all in process, but we serve the one who's in control of the process and who will complete the work that he's begun within us. Thirdly, in these early disciples, we not only see Jesus, when we seek Jesus, do we find the truth and do we find the truth that transforms us, but... When we seek Christ, we find out that we become fully known. Verse 43, it says, Jesus and his small group of disciples. And at this point, I think this early church is formed of, you have Andrew and his brother Simon Peter, and then John, and probably by this point, John doesn't give the account of him bringing his brother James, but probably James is already in the picture by this point, and John just leaves that step out. So you've got these four disciples, and they leave with Jesus for Galilee, And on the way, Jesus finds Philip. And it acknowledges that Philip comes from the same town as Simon, Peter, and Andrew. So it's a small town. Undoubtedly, they knew each other. They might very well have been friends. Seems like all these first disciples were friends with one another in some some way or, or form. And so Philip is brought to Christ. Christ says, follow me, and he follows. 
So obviously Philip already knew something of the claims of Christ. And then Philip runs and tells his friend, Nathaniel, or as he's known in the other Gospels, Bartholomew. And he says, we have found the promised one, the Messiah. He says, we have found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So you can see that Philip still doesn't fully comprehend who Jesus is. He calls him son of Joseph, which in a legal sense was true, but not in a literal sense. So he doesn't understand the virgin birth of Christ. He doesn't understand the full deity of Christ at this point. But he does understand that he is the Messiah. And even though that understanding is imperfect, it's enough at this point. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good? What a skeptical response. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, part of that is that we know later that Nathaniel was from the town of Cana, and we'll get to their ne- the town of Cana next week. But Nathaniel coming from Cana, that was, another, that was a little town in Galilee, which was pretty close to Nazareth. And so I come from a little town. I know how little towns look at other little towns in their immediate area, especially if they have schools that play each other all the time in sports. I don't know if there was any of that going on back then. But, you know, it's kind of similar to somebody today from, uh, say, Tyrone saying, could anything good come out of Phillipsburg, you know, or vice versa? You know, you just have this kind of small-town rivalry. But And I think there probably was some of that going on here. But I think also what Nathaniel is saying is, you're saying this is Messiah. The Messiah cannot come out of Nazareth. That's impossible. He must come from Bethlehem, the city of David. How could he possibly come from Nazareth? And just let me point out there briefly, notice that Philip doesn't argue with him. Maybe he wasn't able to argue with him. Maybe all he could say is, I don't know, I don't understand that. It doesn't fit my understanding either. But all he says is, come and see basically gives the same invitation that Christ gave to Andrew and John. Come and see. Come and listen to him. Check him out. Investigate. I can't answer all your questions. But I've been with him long enough to know that he is the truth. He is the Messiah. We don't need to argue people into believing. We just need to invite them to come and investigate Christ and let Christ convince them. In verse 47, Jesus greets Nathanael with some strange words. He says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now at the very least, what Jesus is saying there is he's acknowledging the sincerity of his heart. He is, even with his mixed understanding and mixed motivation and in his ignorance, His heart is sincere. He's honestly seeking Christ. But if you dig a little deeper, what you understand is this is a veiled reference to the Jewish patriarch Jacob. Remember that Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, that Jacob is the one, the first one who is called Israel. He's given the name Israel. He was the original Israelite. But when you think of Jacob... You don't think of someone who is without deceit, do you? He was full of deceit. Matter of fact, that was his defining characteristic, is that Jacob was full of deceit. The original Israelite was full of deceit. And so Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, you are a true Israelite. 
Because you come sincerely seeking. Nathaniel hears that and he's taken aback by the assessment of his heart. And he says, how do you know me? How could you possibly, you just met me. How could you possibly know what my heart is like? And Jesus says to him, I saw you earlier when you were under the fig tree. Now, this is one of those old comments in Scripture. It's kind of like when Jesus wrote on the dirt when the Pharisees accused the woman caught in adultery. You know, you always wonder, what was he writing in the dirt? And there's all kinds of speculation. We don't know why this statement of Jesus had such a profound impact on Nathaniel. And I can't help but speculate. And I can only relate it to my own kind of experience, put myself in Nathaniel's shoes and think, why would this drive Nathaniel for his next response to be, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. I'm convinced. I'm in. I'm in 100%. How could Jesus saying, I saw you earlier under the fig tree have that impact on Nathaniel? And the only thing I can think is that fig trees were places where you kind of went and sat and pondered. And I can imagine that fig trees were popular places to sit down and have your morning devotions and sit down with the word of God and read and, and pray. And I can only imagine that Something a little earlier in the day or maybe the day before Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree, maybe reading the word of God, maybe, really speculate here, maybe even reading the passage about Jacob. And he had some kind of spiritual breakthrough, some kind of a, a moment of spiritual crisis. And he cried out to God, something, show me your glory, show me yourself, send the Messiah, deliver me. I don't know what he might have prayed. But somehow for Jesus to say, Nathaniel, I was there. I saw you under the fig tree. I heard your prayer. I knew your thoughts. I saw your heart then. And that drove Nathaniel to his knees to say, my Lord and my God, basically. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. We all have a very deep longing to be fully known and to be fully understood. It's a deep longing in each one of our hearts. And really, isn't that the essence of loneliness? To be unknown and to be misunderstood. And that's the effect of our sin and its shame. But the promise of God is that he knows us completely. In Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And I've always marveled, you know, he talks about how exhaustively God knows us, even to knowing our words before we we speak them. He knows our thoughts, he knows our attitudes, he knows us completely, and he ends up saying, that's so wonderful, Lord. We long to be that completely known, but what about our sin? If he knows me that completely, he knows my sin far better than I know it myself, let alone anybody else around me. And that brings us to the final point. That Jesus shows us in these interactions with these early disciples that when we seek Christ, we find the truth. We find the truth that transforms us and changes us from within. We find the one who knows us completely inside and out. And finally, when we seek Christ, we get to see God and be at peace with him. In verse 50, Jesus responds to Nathaniel's confession of faith by saying, You're impressed that I know your secret thoughts and your prayers? 
You ain't seen nothing yet, is what he says. The, the you there actually is plural. So he's referring to all his disciples. This is what all of you, my disciples, are going to see. And that veiled reference to Jacob in verse 47 as the Israelite, the original Israelite, helps us to interpret what Jesus says then in verse 51. He says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Once you understand that Jacob is his reference, then it's easy to see he's referring to Jacob's dream, the vision that Jacob had where as he slept at night, he saw what is either a ladder or a stairway, depending on how you translate it, between earth and heaven, with heaven being opened, and the angels of God descending on the ladder or staircase and ascending. Jesus is saying, I am that ladder. I am that access between earth and heaven. He calls himself the Son of Man, which we'll get into later, which is a messianic title that Jesus used most often for himself. Put one commentator, when I was reading it on this passage, he said, this claim by Jesus is bordering upon rampant megalomania for any ordinary mortal. Because what Jesus is saying is, Come and see, follow me, and you will find that I am the link between sinful man and a holy God. I am the passageway to heaven. I am the gateway to God. I am the bridge that, that crosses the chasm between God and us and our sin. That's why John's central message was, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Jesus would later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's what he's saying to Nathaniel. You will see and you will understand that by knowing me, you will know the Father. By seeing me, you will see the Father. By my blood shed on the cross, you will be at peace with your Creator. So why are you here this morning? What are you seeking? Jesus is offering absolute truth that has the power to change you from the very core of your being. He's offering you the chance to be fully known and understood in all of your being. And he is offering you the way to peace with God. If that's what you're seeking sincerely, then he is saying to you this morning, come and see. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But understand that that comes when you, you receive him as your rabbi, your mentor, your master, and then ultimately as your Lord. It's not found in some kind of Sunday only or part-time relationship. It comes when you give your heart and your life to him. And he gives it back to you as it was always intended to be. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Father, thank you for showing us Christ, for opening our eyes by your Spirit, that we might see him as the truth that transforms us, as the one who knows us completely and yet accepts us because of his shed blood on the cross. Father, as we come to the Lord's table, we come seeking. We are spiritually hungry We long to be filled. May our eyes be focused upon Christ. And may we rejoice in his salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.